Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks, Tyler. We're going to be moving through a lot of different scripture today, but if you want to open your Bibles to our first passage, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14. Today is a blessed day. Not only is it the Lord's day in which his people gather across the world to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, but for us in particular at Mission Fellowship, this is a day where we will be welcoming three individuals fully into fellowship through believer's baptism. And so this morning, I want to take a break from our study uh, that's going through the first uh, letter of Paul to Timothy and spend some time looking at a short biblical theology of baptism, membership, and communion in the local church. To cover this rich topic in full would take hours. But the reason I want to give a short overview this morning is to remind us of the centrality of the gospel and its connection to the formation and life of the local church. If you're taking notes today, get ready to jot down the addresses of many different verses I'm going to present to you, because we're going to go through them pretty quickly, but you can study them more in depth later, and I would highly suggest you do so. In large part, it can be claimed that in the contemporary American church, there is often little cohesion between the topics of gospel, conversion, baptism, church membership, church discipline, and communion. They're all viewed separately by many Christians. And so today, before we get to communion and before we get to the baptisms, I want to take some time to remind us how they all interconnect and are central to the life of every believer and every local church. And so the sermon this morning is taken straight out of our beginning text here in 1 Corinthians 12, and I've entitled it, Baptized into One Body. Baptized into One Body. The imagery in this simple statement is rich because we as Christians, when we are baptized, it is not just some religious thing that we do. It is not just a mystical thing. There are no, you can ask them when they get out of the water, there are no, to my knowledge, bells that go off or lightning bolts that strike. Hopefully not. They're getting into water. That would be bad, right? But there's no mystical thing that happens. It's, it's much more practical than that. It's imagery. It's imagery that we are being baptized into the global, cosmic, and universal church of Christ. But we also participate in that ultimate body of Christ, that larger body of Christ, through our interaction with a specific local body of believers. And we commemorate that every Sunday when we gather together to proclaim the gospel and participate together in the family meal of the Lord's Supper, or what we might call communion, or maybe you're more familiar with the Eucharist. It is here that we participate as a body made up of many members feasting together on the symbols that represent the body and blood of Christ in remembrance of his death and resurrection. And it is in this unified participation that communion has its power. So let's take a look at all of this, and we're going to go through and again do a biblical theology here. Let's start with our first section of text, and I will give you three simple points today about what baptism is. Three simple points. So let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14 in your Bibles there. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, 
and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We begin with this text because it lays out for us the first and core truth of what baptism is. And that is that baptism is the out, excuse me, outward, sign of, uh, outward sign and proclamation of Christian conversion. Baptism is the outward sign and proclamation of Christian conversion. Interestingly enough, the context for these verses that we just read are not baptism at all. The context is something else. It's unity within the church. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth that had many different divisions going on at the time, and he wanted unity within the church. And it speaks to, this context speaks to how the members of the church are to love and serve one another. It is the beginning of three chapters in which Paul calls the church to use their gifts not as a means of self-glorification or gaining a certain level of status within the church, but for loving service of one another. But the reason I begin here this morning is that the starting point for Paul in calling the church to unity and sacrificial love for one another is baptism. He says here, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Now, you might correctly pause and ask here, is this meaning water baptism like we're performing today? And the answer is no. This is speaking of baptism in the Spirit. The baptism that occurs at the point of conversion for all believers. It is not a second conversion. It is not a second work of the Spirit. It is the work of conversion that happens for every Christian. It's the point at which Christ justifies you by his grace and pours out the Holy Spirit upon you so that you might be welcomed into his family. It is his work alone, nothing you have done. It is this baptism that was promised long ago to the Jewish people as an answer to the problem of their ongoing rebellion and the rebellion and sin of all mankind, all nations. By their own power, they could never stay in reconciled union with the God who saved them. They had all the ability, they had the the sacrifice for sin, and yet still they couldn't seem to stay in reconciled, true, unified relationship with the Lord. And so God gave them hope. He gave them hope and a promise that Larry read to us earlier from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, the spiritual baptism that happens at the point of conversion in the life of a Jesus follower is the fulfillment of God's promise to forgive his people's sin, cleanse them from unrighteousness, and bring them into the new covenant that will never be broken. Rather than a people such as the Jews, where some ethnic Jews knew Yahweh and others did not, And yet they were still in this old covenant. The new covenant would carry with it this baptism of the Spirit in which all that truly are Christ's know him. And so when John the Baptist came along, right before the time of Jesus, he was baptizing people. And he was doing so in the traditional Jewish manner as a baptism of just simple purifying repentance. But look at what he proclaimed. 
He said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, guys, this is not some Pentecostal view of the Holy Spirit. This is conversion. It happens for every believer. And so Jesus, right before he ascended into heaven, he confirmed that he was the one that was bringing in the new covenant promised in Jeremiah, bringing in this new baptism of the Spirit uh, that John talks about there in Matthew. He confirmed this truth when he said in Acts 1.5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see, in John's baptism, John was the one doing the baptizing. The one repenting was the one being baptized, and water was the mode of baptism. But in Jesus' baptism, he was the one baptizing. The one repenting and turning to him for forgiveness is the one being baptized, and the Holy Spirit is the mode of baptism. This is not some second work, but the single work of the Holy Spirit for anyone who is truly converted. If you are converted, you have the Spirit of God. And that is why the Apostle Paul could claim in one of his writings that there is but one baptism. And this is a baptism that unites the believer to Jesus and to anyone else who has the Spirit of Christ. This is an amazing thing. It happens every time I go over to West Africa. I talk to these complete strangers, and yet we are brothers in Christ because of the Spirit that is shared amongst us. The Spirit it gives the, the Spirit power in the life of the believer to understand and acknowledge sin and righteousness. So then we might ask, if, if the Lord baptizes in the Spirit at that point of conversion, why then do we need this outward baptism that we're going to perform today? Because it is commanded by our Savior, Lord, and King as an outward sign of the baptism in the Spirit that occurred at the point of conversion and salvation. It's a way of proclaiming, I am participating with Christ in what he has done by his grace and mercy. Amen? You see, water baptism is our physical and present participation with Christ in what he has done at a spiritual and eternal level. Water baptism is an outward sign of acceptance of Christ's forgiveness and cleansing through his giving us of his righteousness so that we can be seen as holy in the eyes of the Father. And because it's an outward sign of participation and acceptance of Christ's saving work on our behalf, it symbolizes and proclaims these truths. So hear Paul's words to the Roman church when he describes what baptism is. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so there's symbolism as the, the person being baptized goes into the water as if they are buried And their old man goes to that place of death. And the one that rises out of the water rises in newness of life, ready to follow Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. Everything the church is to do is to picture the gospel. So Christ commands those who are his to proclaim their conversion through water baptism in his authority. You guys know these. These are some of his last words to his disciples. This is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what's known as the Great Commission. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I have been enthroned as king. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." But many then ask the question, is outward baptism, is water baptism required for salvation? And people will immediately speak of the thief on the cross who couldn't get down off the cross to go be baptized, and yet the Lord said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, what I can say to you is that water baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Why? Because Christ is the one that has done all the work. There is no work we need to do in order to be saved. We are saved by the grace of Christ through faith in him. But baptism is expected and commanded of any believer who has the opportunity. So in other words, unless you are the thief on the cross next to Jesus, you should be baptized. Now in our earlier reading from Acts 2, the Jews were cut to the heart by Peter's sermon. And this means that they were heavily convicted that they had crucified their Messiah, their anointed king. And so they cried out and said, what must, we be do, what must we do to be saved? And this was Peter's response, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice that everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In the contemporary church, we have replaced baptism in many cases with an altar call. And friends, unfortunately, altar calls, you will not find them in the Bible. Baptism, you will find. We have done things in the contemporary church to reach out to the seekers. And in doing so, we have become biblically illiterate and unfortunately not done what we are called and commanded to do. And so we are to repent and be baptized. If you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, the Lord is calling you, he's commanding you to be baptized as a proclamation that you are his. Baptism is the outward participation, sign, and proclamation of the work that God has done by his spirit in conversion. It is how you declare, I am with Jesus. I am part of his kingdom. Amen? 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 Secondly, though, it's more than that. Baptism is the entry point into covenant and communion with the church. Baptism is the entry point into covenant and communion with the church. Remember the text from the prophet Jeremiah that we noted a few moments ago. He said in Jeremiah 31, 31, that he would be making a new covenant. Now, there is a sense in which we have been initiated into the new covenant, In our Bibles, we break them down into Old Testament, New Testament. In point of fact, what they are is Old Covenant, New Covenant. And we exist in the New Covenant. And so there is this sense where we have been initiated. It has started the New Covenant with Christ, and yet the fullness is not yet present because Christ does not physically rule and reign. But nonetheless, it is an active covenant relationship, just as the Old Covenant was. Now, if you're unfamiliar with covenant, if you haven't been here very long at this church or if you're visiting today, the closest thing we can think to, uh, about in our society today of, of covenant is the idea of marriage. It is an oath with faithfulness and follow-through and care and love, at least what marriage should be. And so the outward sign of the old covenant for the people of Israel was the sign of male circumcision. That sign was used symbolically to describe how they, as sinful humans, 
needed to have their sinful nature cut away and discarded so that they would have hearts dedicated to covenant loyalty with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the only God. It was the entry sign into the Old Covenant. But this symbolism was then carried forward to the New Testament church, and the sign of baptism took over and became the entry sign into the New Covenant. Notice here how Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 2, he compares the idea of circumcision and baptism. He says in Colossians 2, 11 through 12, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Abraham had been chosen by grace through faith. He had to proclaim his covenant outwardly with the sign of circumcision. We similarly have been elected by grace through faith. And our proclamation outwardly is that we voluntarily accept and enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have become his people, and so baptism is the entry point into the covenant union with Christ. But let's not forget our passage from first thing this morning. In 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about being baptized into Christ and then being baptized into him as a member of his body. The context of that passage speaks of each of us using our gift to serve the body, just as an eye or a thumb does the human body. After his death, Christ ascended to heaven and sent his spirit to cleanse his people, to bring them into his kingdom. And his people collectively throughout the earth act in his place as his his new means of incarnation, his new means of an incarnate presence in the world. But while we are part of the body of Christ universal that spans across time and space, we practically and presently participate in that body through our place in a local expression of the larger body of Christ. That's called the local church. There are no individual Christians that are not part of a local body of Christ. So that means that when we are baptized, we are baptized into a people. We are welcomed both cosmically and locally through fellowship in a local church. You might say that we are baptized into a specific church community. For it is a specific church community that is affirming your profession of faith. It is a specific church community that states clearly by baptizing you that they are willing to take on the responsibility to hold you accountable to Christ's commands. In other words, there is a responsibility in that fellowship. You see, the church is not a group of people that randomly come together to hear good music and a motivating speech. It's a specific group of people that covenant together to proclaim Christ in common assembly, public proclamation, and holy life. In the early Jerusalem church, in Acts 1, the early church was a definitive and specific group of about 120 persons. And then in Acts 2, when they repented and were baptized, it says that that number, in other words, the membership of the Jerusalem church grew to over 3,000 people, a specific people. Baptism, therefore, is the entry point into covenant and communion with the local church. Without baptism, there is no acceptance or participation or proclamation that you have joined together to Christ and his people in the new covenant. You can't commit to the new covenant without committing to a specific covenant community. 
Then from that first New Covenant community of baptized disciples, the church began the tradition of assembling on the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord was raised, Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that we gather. And this act of gathering together to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection is at the core of what it is to be a church. The very word church in Greek, ekklesia, it means a physical assembly of people gathered together. And there in that assembly, they began a practice that proclaimed their mutual responsibility, their mutual submission and accountability to the Lord and to one another within the new covenant. They did so by a tradition that Jesus had established during the Last Supper, the tradition of communion or breaking of bread. And this symbolic family meal that we declare every Sunday, it declares participation with Christ and with his people. And that supper makes each of us as individual members form into one body. It reminds us that we are individual Christians in Christ, yes, but we are more. We are a church in Christ as well. Listen to the words of Paul to the church at Corinth that was in the midst of so much immature division. He said this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That word participation that he has there is the Greek word that's translated elsewhere, fellowship. Participation in the Lord's Supper makes many into one, members into a body, Christians into a church. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, again, it is not some mystical religious thing that we do. In it, we are participating in a common declaration. We are proclaiming our individual and corporate sin that resulted in being cut off and isolated and divided from God and from one another. And we are proclaiming our need for salvation as a result. When we take the bread, we are stating together, Jesus' body was given for me and for us. When we drink the cup, we are saying Jesus' blood was shed to forgive my sins and our sins. It is not a mystical action that imparts grace in and of itself. It is a communal proclamation to the spiritual powers and the unbelieving world that we are one in Christ. And it is the gospel that unifies us. It testifies that we have been saved from our sin and the isolation that it brought about by the sacrificial and gracious and merciful work of the cross and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. And each time we participate in communion together, it is a recommitment that we are the Lord's to do with as he will. And in it, we also receive and commit to the responsibility to love the local church and preserve its unity as our Lord requires of us. To be baptized is to desire participation with a local body in the family meal, the remembrance of communion. To participate in the remembrance of communion means you have been initiated into the new covenant community through baptism. Pastor Bobby Jameson sums up the relationship between baptism and communion this way. I love this. Baptism binds one to many, and the Lord's Supper binds many into one. Baptism binds one to many, and the Lord's Supper binds many into one. Friends, baptism is the outward sign and proclamation of Christian conversion. Baptism is the entry point into covenant and communion with the church. And thirdly, finally, 
Baptism is the oath of submission to Christ as king. Baptism is the oath of submission to Christ as king. As a result of being joined together in this new covenant with Christ and one another, we have common unity through a mix of mutual submission and mutual accountability to walk within that covenant commitment. Remember Christ's words to the disciples in the Great Commission, that he reigns as our king, and our allegiance that was elsewhere now goes to him and him alone. And we have become ambassadors of his kingdom, acting on his behalf and on his authority in his name. Today, we as pastors will baptize three what are called initiates, or people who are initiating uh, their walk with Christ in the church. And we will baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We will follow this command. As his ambassadors, pastors of his church, we will be formalizing their citizenship into his kingdom. Friends, is that not an amazing thing? That the God of the entire universe has deputized us as a church to put the hand of fellowship towards people to say, you are now part of his kingdom, and we do so in his authority. When you truly get that, you realize that there is no greater privilege as a church than to baptize new believers into his family. And so when we are baptized and enter into that formal membership with one another, we are not simply accepting through gritted teeth accountability. We are pleading with one another to hold us accountable. And we are expressing our voluntary willingness to accept accountability when it comes. We do this because in the baptism that Christ performed by his Spirit, and in the outward sign of water baptism, we have inaugurated or begun our new creation in Christ. The new creation doesn't start when we die or go to be with the Lord. It starts at the moment of baptism and continues through eternity. Part of that is simply the resurrection to the new body. Remember what Paul said regarding baptism there in Romans 6.4. It says there that we might walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. And the core of this responsibility to walk in this newness of life, to accept Christ as king, it lies upon each one of us individually. The world is in a place where everyone wants to rid themselves of responsibility and point the finger at everyone else. Christians are to be far different. We're to be the polar opposite that we accept the responsibility of our sin and we go to Christ for his grace to forgive us of that sin. But then we take on the responsibility for walking in this newness of life. We're to hold ourselves accountable to the commands of Christ and the covenant into which we have voluntarily entered. This is why we pray. This is why we spend time with the Lord. This is why we engage in community. This is why we read our Bibles to understand the commands of Christ. And so each of us as Christians should be striving to live out our walk with Christ in fear and trembling, but also in faith and hope and love. Christ realized, however, that we could not do this alone. For our new selves are merely inaugurated or initiated into this form, and so the fullness of our new selves has not yet come and will not come until our faith becomes sight and we see the Lord face to face. And so Christ knew that we needed one another in the fight during this in-between time called the church age. And so Christ gave an important authority and job to the church, the power to affirm someone's unity with the church and the power to declare that someone is no longer unified. This is 
completely against our current day mentality that I would submit myself over to someone else, in fact, to a group of people, that's craziness. Yes, it absolutely is. But it can only be done through the Spirit. In Matthew 16, Jesus declared to Peter and the apostles that his church would stand firm, that they, the church, would be his ambassadors and representatives on the earth to declare his authority to what's called bind and loose. And this simply means the power to forbid and the power to allow to forbid from entering into Christ's people and to allow to enter into Christ's people. It is this same power within the law and reign of Christ that anchors the process of holding one another accountable to the new covenant in Christ. We see this a mere two chapters later. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there to Matthew 18. And I'll put it up on the screen for those of you that don't have your Bible. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, outside the covenant. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice the same wording as just two chapters before. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Friends, notice the context of this is not a prayer circle. It is the church conducting its authority to bind and loose. People have asked us elders before, why do you guys talk about Matthew 18 so much? Because, friends, Matthew 18 is directly tied to baptism. It's directly tied to communion. It's directly tied to church membership. It's directly tied to church discipline. It's directly tied to salvation. As a church, we baptize. We enter into the family meal of communion. We hold one another accountable in simple ways so that we never have to get to the place of taking it to the church. We do these things because they are commanded by our Savior. They are not optional. They are not optional because they make us feel uncomfortable or feel, make us feel like we lose our autonomy. They are commands of our King. This statement, like I said, of two or three gathered together is an identification of the church. It's believers who have formally joined together to carry out the charter that Jesus has granted his people. You see, at the base, a church is Christians who covenant together to live out obedience to Christ among themselves. One cannot be accountable to Christ without also being accountable to his people. One cannot be accountable to Christ without also being accountable to his people. But I fear, especially in the American church, that there is a large number of people who believe they are accountable to Christ without being accountable to his church. And so baptism is a formal request to participate in that same covenant accountability because the person requesting baptism realizes that they cannot pursue the holiness of Christ in and of themselves. Those of you that are already members in this church, raise your hand if you agree that you cannot do this walk with Christ on your own. Anyone? 
Absolutely. We need one another so that when we fall into the same pattern as Eve, becoming judges in and of ourselves, unable to see our own foolishness, we need others to help us walk in the wisdom of God and his word. An early Reformed pastor put it this way. He says, quote, But when one receives the baptism of water, the one who is baptized testifies publicly that he has pledged himself henceforth to live according to the rule of Christ. By virtue of this pledge, he has submitted himself to sisters, brothers, and to the church, so that when he transgresses, they now have the authority to admonish, punish, ban, and reaccept him. Friends, if you say you are submitted to Christ, but not to the local church you attend and its members, you are not actually submitted to Christ, based upon the word of God. The church is how you participate with Christ. To love Christ is to love his incarnate body, his church, and each of us live this out in the context of a particular local church. To be faithful to Christ is to be faithful to his incarnate body, his church. And each of us live this out in the context of a particular local church. And baptism, which is an initiation into the new covenant and the local community that flows from it, is also an oath to live according to the reign and law of the love of Christ. Baptism is the outward sign and proclamation of Christian conversion. Baptism is the entry point into covenant and communion with the church. And baptism is the oath of submission to Christ as king and to his church. Friends, if you believe today that you are a sinner in need of salvation, if you believe that Christ died in your place, receiving the due penalty for your sins on the cross and separation from the Father, and if you believe that Christ resurrected, proving victory over your, over your sins and that he is now enthroned as your king, if you believe and are convicted by these things, you can rejoice because he has called you to himself, praise God. And he has converted your sinful heart into a heart that is convicted by his spirit, amen? That is a miracle. And it is nothing we can do on our own. It is only by the grace of Jesus. If this is you, but you have not been baptized to outwardly proclaim these truths that we have declared today, your king has commanded you to do so. And so please come and speak with one of us pastors after the service to let us know your desire to be baptized and to step into the new covenant people of God within this church. If you're visiting and this strikes you and you think, man, I have never heard it put this way before. I need to go be baptized at my local church. We rejoice with you and we would encourage you to go talk to your pastors and become submitted to that local congregation. Christ has ordained and commanded that his people repent, be baptized, receive the gift of his Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life, commit to participation in his body in a local church membership, profess their common unity and salvation through communion, and be held to account in loving discipleship and discipline. Friends, no one part of this can survive or exist without the other. They do not work as separate pieces. And the starting point for all of this is the gracious work of Christ in his grace when he baptized you in the Spirit to draw you to himself. Nothing we can do, nothing we can earn. We simply declare that it has been done and that we voluntarily accept it with the starting point of baptism. And so today we will do just that as a church community. We will begin with 
just the members of this church and the three new initiates declaring their common unity through the oath that we state at each congregational meeting, which is intended to remind us of our covenant commitment to one another. We will then take of communion together, and then we will listen and celebrate together as three souls are added to our number. Amen?